little areas that were hike up, ski down, kind of got replaced by people that had rope toes and a little more terrain. And a lot of those rope to hills got replaced by ski areas that invested in pommel lifts or even chair lifts, you know, to complement their uphill capacity. And so it was no longer if I want to ski, I got to hike. And if I want to ski, but I just don't want the hiking part. I like the gravity part. On this run of the Mountain Works podcast, we're not going to take the lift. We're going to take the time machine. to the Mountain Works podcast, providing insider intel on how ski areas happen, created by and for ski area employees in the Northwest. I'm Jordan Elliott. Today, we are looking at about an hour long episode of my conversation with author Steve Stenkamp, whose forthcoming book, Oregon Law Ski Areas should be coming our way later on in 2022. Steve is now hanging out in his second year of retirement, doing a few research projects. Uh, his back catalog includes some time in a snowcat, being a parking lot plow crew back in the day, being a mayor, being a teacher, being a firefighter. He says he's a used to be. He used to be a lot of things. It's fun to talk about. When I asked Steve some of the names of these long forgotten ski areas, here's what he said. Trail Camp, Sky Trail, Moore Park, uh, Marine Barracks, Klamath Falls, Tomahawk, Lava Butte, Skyliners, Tumlo Creek, Skyliners, McKenzie Pass, Sand Hills, Hand Lake, White Branch, Idana, uh, Sandy Am Lodge, Star Ridge, High Desert, Arbuckle, Stanley Hill, Cutsforth Park, Mount Tabor. That's a pretty good start pretty right good off the top start. of my head without looking at the list. I like it. I liked it then, and I still like it now. A lot of those places I had no idea were even part of existence. This was about a two-hour-long conversation with Steve, which I've whittled down now to be just about an hour. There are probably a couple funky transitions because we were really just on a roll having a conversation with ourselves. I'm just going to roll it. You stay tuned at the end where I'm going to tell you how this ties in to the Mountain Works Conference. See you on the other side. Well, I'm here with Steve uh, Steinkamp. Did I say Steinkamp? Steinkamp. Steinkamp. Yep. yep. Steve Steinkamp, uh, author of The Lost Ski Areas of Oregon. Uh, is that the correct title, too, or is it Oregon's Lost Ski Areas? It's Oregon Lost Ski Areas. Um, the book doesn't have an official title yet, but that's the direction I'm, I'm going to be going with it when mm -hmm. I hope to release it in the summer of 2022. Uh, gotcha. Well, I attended the presentation you did after missing it, I think, twice before. Um, one, when I didn't really wasn't doing this uh, with the association and the second time I missed you. And uh, last week I was able to go and it was a really great presentation just to hear about the book and all that. I want to get to that. But first, I want to get a little bit just of background from you 
uh, because I heard a bit of your bio as they introduced you at that presentation. Uh, and it sounds like you're a real long time Bend native. My grandparents homesteaded here in 1912. And uh, so I... I grew up here, went to Bend schools, like came and went a couple times, um, but this is home. Uh, you were the mayor of Bend, correct? I was. I was elected to city council in 92, elected mayor in 94, served two years as mayor, and then I served on uh, Bend Parks Board for three years, and I've done a lot of community board work over the, my duration on the planet. Yeah. So mayor in the mid-90s. A lot, a lot has changed in this town since <laughs> A lot then. of change. Well, there's a lot of change in this town from when I grew up as a kid. And I remember, I mean, I can remember when the first traffic light was put in and thought that was really cool. And it's like, oh, we got a traffic light now. I only knew then what I know now. So what was the hot topic in your tenure, either city council or mayor, the hot topic of the day? What was like the big growth? Big growth. Even yeah. back in the 90s. You know, how do we plan for it? How do you do it? And it, it'd been great if, if everyone had a crystal ball back then, because mm. um, I think there'd have been some moves made differently. But I think we were a little proactive in trying to get some new um, planning and some new subdivision ordinances and things like that to make Bend a, a different community than it, the direction it was going at the time. The general plan hadn't been updated in 20 years. And so that was a project that we took on as updating the whole general plan, which you, you're forecasting out what you think is reasonable. Obviously, we were pretty conservative with our estimates as far as, as growth. And for me, it's, it's certainly changed from when I grew up. And, and it frustrates me at times. But then I also understand why people want to be here. Yeah. What I don't understand is when people move here and start complaining about being here. That's one that's really been hard for me to understand for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, a lot of people share that sentiment. Yeah, a lot there. Well, I, like I said, I really enjoyed that presentation last week. And here in a bit, I'll kind of tell you ideas of where I think it can tie into what the association's doing. But, you know, sans a slide deck or anything, uh, let's kind of get into it on the, okay. the Lost Ski areas. Uh, sure. What you got for me? For me, it's there's a there's a lot to it. And, and I've been really happy that I've been able to keep some of that history alive because it was pretty well buried. And a lot of my digging has been... Um, pretty rewarding as far as the stories on some of these places. Story I picked out of the Oregonian, it was dated 1910. And they were talking about a bunch of people that went, silly fools went up to Mount Hood to try this skiing thing. And in the newspaper story said, we don't think skiing is going to be as popular as ping pong, but only time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> and that's from 110 years ago. And, and so when you see stuff like that, it makes you giggle. But at the same time, there's, there's, there's a lot of interest in how it's all evolved and changed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think of that, something I'm, I'm really interested in is the 10th Mountain Division and those ski areas that were started mm -hmm. out of that World War II effort. But you're talking, of course, way before that when rope toes are possible. And we're not just talking about ski lifts and that you know new tech that had come into play. But the overlap, um, if you were just saying where you're not sure how relevant some of those old stuff is to modern skiing, I got to think there's overlap in leadership and those the networks of those people and the, I don't know, the puzzle pieces that go from one of a, that's now a lost ski area that may still be influencing a current ski area. That's what I'm really trying to dig into and see what that cultural. Oh, that's kind, that's kind of an interesting, that's an interesting take on it. And I don't, I think my, my first reaction to that statement is I think a lot of our current ski area managers and hopefully that, I mean, if they're a ski area manager, they got pretty thick skin. 
But I think a lot of ski area managers and upper ski area employees forget about what it was like. And conversely, customers do too. And I think somewhere in there, there's, there's some interesting mix where, and as I mentioned in, in my presentation, you, you couldn't call a ski report. You couldn't get on computer and, and see real time what it's actually doing. And conversely, with all this technology, I think sometimes ski areas have failed to react to it in, I mean, it's been real positive. It's a great way to get the word out. But then sometimes when, you know, social media, for example, they, they start the bash routine. I think a lot of ski areas kind of sit back and let themselves get bashed. And I think that, um, you know, because that's how rumors get spread. And, you know, as they used to say back in my day skiing, as the bull wheel turns. Mm-hmm. And and I think being a little more proactive, um, not being defensive, but just putting the true word out. No, this is what's transpiring and let it go from there. Official capacity word is much better than a bunch of posts from Facebook experts. Mm-hmm. Which, are, which are infinite. <laughs> infinite <laughs> which well, are infinite. There's a lot of brilliance in the world. <laughs> you know, history has, has changed skiing and, and, and what it's all about. And uh, one of the things that's always kind of disturbs me, and this is just from a, a Puritan standpoint, if you will, is that I think it's great when a ski area markets their history, but I think it's unconscionable when they market inaccurate history. Mm. And I've seen ski areas that have said, you know, certain things um, that, yeah, if you didn't have any background, you might buy off on it. Gee, that's kind of a neat deal. But if they did a little more research and realized, yeah, they're not being completely honest. Mm-hmm. And and I'm one of those because I do so much history research, not only with, you know, the Ski Aries Project, with several other projects I'm working on. So I get to be kind of a little stickler. It's okay to market history. And I think that that a lot of Ski Aries, when they start marketing their history as far as their, you know, their their time around or their their timelines or you know, specific anniversaries of certain things. Um, you know, I think those are really good things to keep that history alive. But when they're done wrong, just like we talked about social media, it keeps kind of perpetuating itself. And well, I heard three years ago, this was, and, and by then you kind of lose what's accurate as far as their own history. And I'll give you a classic example. A lot of ski areas will, will talk about their anniversaries, the number of seasons. But when you count a ski season or when you start operation, you start at year one. When you're born, you start at year, year zero. So when you're doing the math, for example, if, if this was, you know, year 2000 and you started in 1970, you would think that's your 30th, your 30th season, but it's not because you start with 1970. So it's actually your 31st season. Mm-hmm. And it, it, is, it, is, is it picking this? Sure. But that's an accurate portrayal of your history. And why would you shortchange yourself? And, and, I, and I've had these conversations with people that go, no, it's, it's 2000 minus 1970. That's 30 years. Where'd you learn math? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not a math question. It's, it's a counting <laughs> question. It's like when you have a, whatever, awards dinner, the second annual 
gala of the exalted people or whatever, right? Right. It's the same right. thing. It's, it's, not, it's, it's your, your second, second one, one, your first one. And I always love the term first annual. Yeah. Well, how can it be annual and first at the same time? I mean, it's, no, it's your first. <laughs> the second you can say annual, but the first you can't. Yeah. It's maybe hopes that it's going to be annual, yeah. but but it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Is the second one your first annual? Your first Ooh. ever, and then your second one's your first annual. <laughs> I'm going to scratch my head on that one for a long time. Uh, I guess sourcing, when you look at... One thing I'm interested in is I kind of think we're in the third generation of ski area leadership right now. If we talk of founders, if I was talking about 10 mm-hmm. division mm-hmm. And, and all that, mm-hmm. and, and maybe this is where you know I need someone like you because it's probably beyond that if we're talking about rope toes and old school ski clubs like that. But you had founders of the resorts that you see today. You got the people that learned from them who are now retiring. And you got a new crop coming up right now. Maybe it's leaning into the fourth in some areas, depending on, on where that is. But how much institutional knowledge gets lost then? So you, they don't have a resource to go back and see, is this our 31st or our 32nd year? Or, you, you know, snow logs. You go back and see what, what's an accurate, accurate history of right. our average snowfall. Right. And are we counting our average snowfall from our open date and close date when you can ride the chairs or the winter? from October till whenever it stops snowing in the meteorological cycle or, or whatever. Yeah, where's where's that? And that's, and that's that's an interesting thing you say, especially this year with none of the skiers. Here we are December 8th and none of the ski areas in, in Oregon are open. I believe Mission Ridge is running a little bit, um, but really we're, we're waiting for those big dumps. And and then, then you bring in the global warming topic in there. Is that a part of it? But you know, my research, like, for example, Mount Bachelor's first season in 58, they opened up right around Thanksgiving for their inaugural season, their first season. Mm-hmm. And um, then, then they shut back down because, I mean, the weather in Bend was 60, 65 degrees like it was here last week. And they didn't reopen again until after Christmas. And then they had a pretty decent season from then on. This is 1958. My first year working at Mount Bachelor was 76, 77 ski season. They opened up briefly in December for a short period of time. They did. They were hauling snow off a of Dutchman's flat. They were doing all these things to kind of keep some basic facilities operating. Weather warmed up. Everything went away. Then they had this high-pressure system move in, and I didn't start my job as a lift operator, my first job in skiing, until the first week in February, which was then 77. And that was a pretty big year because Bachelor had just built their original Outback chair, and that was going to be, you know, kind of the big deal to start that season off. And here they were saddled with this debt of new lift construction and no mm-hmm. snow to open up. So in my short lifetime, you know, I've seen situations much like we're seeing to, today and the season always happened. And so a lot of times those records, you know, I've found a lot of records as far as skier visits. Some of that is still, you know, recorded for a service because that was part of the, their special use permits is recording number of people that were utilizing the facilities. But a lot of that information as far as snow didn't really get recorded like they do now. Now it seems like skiers want to accumulate, you know, how much new snow they get every year as a system of what you would expect as far as fresh snow if you were going on a vacation. And it's, again, great tool for marketing. But a lot of them don't have those records going way back into the 50s and 60s. So a lot of times it's what I would consider fairly fresh information as far as when people actually started writing that stuff down. Mm-hmm. Mm. To, to go back to think of your presentation, let's talk about the way you're, you're classifying what, what's a lost ski area, what's not a lost ski area. Um, and some ones in 
weird places that I hadn't heard of, but makes sense, especially if we're looking at this weather forecast for this storm coming in right now, where it's going to snow at 1,500 feet maybe, uh, in Portland, rope toes. Yeah. And, and that's the fun thing about this project. And, and I knew when I started and I you know, had the institutional knowledge of some that I know of are no longer existing. But the ones I kept finding, I kept finding. And I did a presentation and someone mentioned, well, do you know there was a rope tow at Mount Tabor in Portland? And, and normally when someone comes up to me and tells me something like that, I'm, I'm relying on their institutional knowledge or perhaps maybe they were confused about something. So that one, first glance, I kind of in the back of my mind went, yeah, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But I'm always like, well, that'd be interesting. Let me do some research. And sure enough, there's a timeline from Portland Parks Bureau of when they actually had a rope tow at Mount Tabor in Portland. It didn't operate very you know, often, but when they did have snow, they'd fire up this little rope tow and in between the reservoirs on Mount Tabor, they had a little rope tow set up for the community to use. And that was in the in the mid-50s, 53 to about 56, I think. Okay. And so um, there's lots of those little places when I mentioned ski area in Idana, you know, which is an elevation of 2,000 feet. You know, they didn't get opened at first until they had enough snow. And that's still an area that doesn't get a lot of snowpack. And when it does, it comes down and then disappears you know, pretty quickly at 2,000 feet. Um, Taft Mountain, you know, is at 3,800 feet. When snow came, it became problematic to open the roads mm-hmm. because they weren't on a state highway system where the state took care of road maintenance. And that was a financially pretty big burden for a lot of the little ski areas to handle is just the, the snow removal. Yeah, Why some access. ski areas moved from their location just because of, of difficult access. And when you talk about ski areas and what, kind of going back to your original question, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Davis who's done the lost NELSAP, New England Lost Ski Areas Project. And he's done a great job of research and he's got all these great books of different mountain ranges in, in the New England area about the lost ski areas, which there's, he's got a great collection of this information. But his criteria was any ski area that had some sort of mechanized lift. So that's really starting about 1935. And I thought if using that same criteria here, I would be eliminating a lot of things and a lot of those earlier skiers that were, you know, going to fight the ping pong rule, if you will. <laughs> um, and there was a lot of ski areas where it was hike up, ski down. And they were organized ski areas. They were places that were either built, you know, privately, but more often than not built by the Forest Service to encourage people to come in and recreate in the winter. And, and so I, when I started it, I used anything that was organized um, for people to be able to ski, whether it was on private land or public land. The exception being, like for example, when I was a kid, if there was enough snow, we built a little ski hill behind Marshall School. And it was usually be good for an afternoon or two. And I don't consider that a, an organized place for skiing. That's just a bunch of us not head neighbor kids, you know, trying to ruin our skis on eight inches of snow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I like that take on it because it, if you don't go that way, you eliminate the ability to talk about the culture, like the roots of the culture foundation of why the, the rope toe's there. You were hiking up first. The rope toe definitely changed the way you looked at skiing. Um, and, and any kind of powered lift really changed. In fact, you know, the little areas that were hike up, ski down, kind of got replaced by people that had rope toes and a little more terrain. And a lot of those rope to hills got replaced by ski areas that invested in pommel lifts or even chair lifts you know, to complement their uphill capacity. And so it was no longer, if I want to ski, I got to hike. And it's, I want to ski, but I just don't want the hiking part. I like the gravity part. 
And, and that really is kind of morphed into what we have today, which is the reason why I just wanted to start with anything that was organized as far as a place to go skiing. And you're a bit of a, would you say you're an amateur archaeologist? Amateur archaeologist. And that you had great photos um, uh, of basically you're just trudging around the woods all summer long and taking photos and trying to identify where this old tow rope line could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, what the soil, what was that place that you were talking about the soil impact and you could tell, oh, this is where the toboggan run. That was the original Skyliners up on, on uh, McKenzie Pass. And it's one that, you know, walking back and forth on the hill, trying to visualize where that straight shot toboggan run. Toboggans were really popular in the twenties and thirties because it was a, a poor person's way to enjoy winter sports. You had the fun of going fast. You were out in the snow. And if you didn't like going from six foot to face plant, um, you didn't have to have that worry. So it was, it was a safer sport, too. And so there at uh, McKinsey Pass there on, on uh, the Skyliners original hill, they built an, an 800 foot toboggan run, which they had to extend to 900 foot because people were going too fast. Mm-hmm. And it was a wooden trough that was wide enough for a toboggan. And it was about 12 to 18 inches tall. And you got in that chute, if you will straight as narrow ran. And so my trips back and forth in the hillside trying to find it. And it wasn't until after the Millie fire in 2017, I walked the slope again just to see what remnants were, were still left. And as I'm crisscrossing across the hillside, I just noticed this different colored patch of ground and then walked up to the top. And that patch of ground is just straight as an arrow going downhill. And, and I walked it off at about 875 feet. And I'm thinking, well, that's pretty close to the 900 foot. And there's nothing else on that hillside that resembles that. And what it was, was the vegetation had covered everything over, over, I mean, that thing was, they were no longer using it in 1935. So rough numbers, what, 80 years later, all that vegetation burning away and that soil where that wooden tube or that wooden box for the toboggans to go in. It compacted the soil enough. There was enough vegetation and there was a, a clear line in the ground after all the vegetation had burned off where that thing was. Now, to quantify that, I could go up there with a metal detector and run my metal detector off of there. And when you start finding, nails. you know, all the nails and things like that, then, you know, that's that's my next step. But that to me made a lot of sense because it was away from the jump hill. It was a little bit further away from the lodge so that any skiing activity would not interfere with toboggans. And Toboggans in some of the early hills, as popular as they were, they started having user conflicts. Um, mm-hmm. you know, toboggans on a ski hill and skiers on a toboggan hill, vice versa. This one, you wouldn't have skiers on it, but that area being open enough, you might have a skier that would traverse and all of a sudden run into this nice big <laughs> square yeah. divot in the ground with, <laughs> with all the wood on it. And they're not, those aren't compatible. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if some kid put his skis in that and just pointed it straight downhill. <laughs> if I would have been there in 1930, I'd have been in that trough doing exactly that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, that's not a conflict that's gone away then. For no, 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 tube no. Tube hill operators or any of that. There's, yeah. you know, and... and you know, as long as there's been one, I mean, you can, you can, you can check all the, I mean, there's always been conflicts, you know, it was, you know, skiers, then, then, I mean, even back in my day where you had to have a runaway strap and then you had brakes mm-hmm. and, oh uh, boy, I don't know about those brake things. I mean, that was a little bit of conflict, which got resolved. Um, snowboarders, that was a conflict. And I actually, when I was in high school, worked for a gentleman here in Bend that made a product called the Snow Snake. And it was really a, an early version of a snowboard, but one foot behind the other. 
and great fun to ski in. And, it, and you know, the wettest, cruddiest snow, you could go through it like no big deal. And uh, myself and one of my high school buddies, we did a trip to Canada and we skied some ski areas in Canada. And I was at outside of Kelowna, British Columbia. I think it's called Sun Peaks now. At that time, it was called Tot Mountain. And we went up to the ski and the ski patrolman walked up and goes, you can't use those up here. Mm-hmm. And he goes, why not? And he goes, well, you don't have a, a, a break. I said, yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, it's leashed on the, on the foot that's in a binding. And the other one, you just had this little pocket that you slipped in with your rear foot. And I said, no, it's, it's attached. And he goes, this is pretty steep up here. You can't use that up here. And, you know, we'd already bought our ticket. Mm-hmm. And so I, I looked at him and I said, tell you what, let's go for a ride. You pick where you want me to ski, and then you can judge whether or not we can ski your hill. And I'm being a smart-ass 18-year-old. And he kind of looked at me like, okay, we're going to go ski lift line. You can go see your, you know, he made some drug. I said, okay, let's go. And we got up to the top, and I looked at it. I was like, this is going to be fun. And I just looked over my shoulder and said, hope you keep up. And off I went. Never saw that ski patrolman again. (laughs) (laughs) So, but even that, there was a conflict bringing this single skiing because no one had ever seen it. It's like, you know, this is even really before snowboards got really popular. Mm -hmm. Snowboarding. And now you look at, you know, there was the Nordic trails um, were conflict with snowmobiles and they've they've separated and they've done some of those kinds of things. So anytime you have something that's, you know, ski bikes, I'm sure at some point in time, if those get more popular and ski bikes have been around, I've got advertisements from the 40s when the first ski bikes were, you know, coming on the scene. And so it's not a new phenomenon. It's just gaining a little popularity. Mm-hmm. And again, those little conflicts. And it was fun. This last winter, I skied at um, Ferguson Ridge outside of Joseph. Oh, yeah. And there was a young man on a ski bike. And he just, when he'd grab the tee, and then he just loop it through his handlebars and sit on a ski bike as it pulled him up. And I thought, that's really pretty cool. And, and there was enough for me. There was no, no user conflict, but I just thought, well, that's going to be interesting. How are you going to ride a T-bar on that ski bike? Oh, he had it dialed in. And it was really fun to watch. Kind of to the point where it made me say, hey, buddy, can I go for a ride? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that looks like fun. It's definitely, there's still a, a bit of conflict attitude. There with the bikes now, and there's some skiers that are adopting them and letting it happen. It's kind of a mix. Uh, I'd say it's in the minority still, but I mean, you yeah. still have you have the conflicts in the mountain bikes, you know, and the e-bikes and the mountain oh, yeah. bikers, and I mean, you're always going to have those conflicts. Sometimes they get resolved. Um, sometimes they like this the the cross country or and the snowmobilers. They've just created separate corridors so they can both enjoy their sports. And mm-hmm. and you know, if if you want to ski on a, it's interesting. You can ski on a snowmobile trail. But you can't snowmobile on a ski trail. And mm-hmm. so skiers kind of have carte blanche of what they want to do. But if you really want, you know, the lack of any kind of conflict, you also have your places where you can go by yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, horses and mountain bikers, too. Equine trail riders. Is, I don't know. We can go down conflict. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and you know what? I, I think conflict is always the constant yeah. of some sort. And, uh, you know, as a society, I don't think we like change very well, even though we're changing really rapidly. I don't think, I don't think we like it all. And I was like, and, and for me, I'm a guy in my sixties and I, I try not to be the old fart, you know, and kind of when I see something new, it's like, okay, well, I don't understand that, but let's kind of see what it is as opposed to, you know, crossing my arm going. And I remember our father very well when the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan's show and he goes, God, what a bunch of crap. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> so something new comes on. It's like, try to keep an open mind and look and see, oh, that'd be kind of good. Yeah, yeah. That's a good, that's a good attitude to have. 
Um, I want to I want to revisit the. Have you found anything, or maybe it's just an area that you would point me towards, of where there might be that overlap in these leaders of those early ski areas being involved in multiple areas? I would think if we're thinking locally in the Skylanders Club and the Sanium, uh, the founding of Hoodoo, the founding of Mount Bachelor, where these things happened, are there are there common players that? If you look at some of the the Valley Ski Clubs from back in the day, there was the San Am Ski Club, the Hell on Ski Ski Club, the Obsidians, the Ski Loafers, um, and I'm, I know I'm going to miss some, you know, off the top of my head. But when a new area was proposed, those groups would go out with a Forest Service or a government official, and and so they would. And, and I'll use the example at San Am Pass. They brought a bunch of people up, and this was in the in the probably 1936, 1937. And they they stayed at Fish Lake, and then they went up and explored all these different areas. But there was members of all these groups that went up to check out potential ski hills. And, you know, the, their original thought was to develop Three Finger Jack. And then when they started kind of pursuing, you know, keeping the road open and things like that, they, they moved down, and, and that's when Ed Thurston developed uh, Hoodoo. Um, but they looked at several different places there, and these groups, as they were in their in their um, infancy stages, if you will, were pretty uh, integral in, in in picking these different places for ski areas. And then, then they would get a, a certain degree of ownership. Um, for example, a, a ski hill at Camila, which was built by the Oregon Trail Ski Club out of Pendleton. And when you think of a ski club. The term ski club in Pendleton doesn't, by nature, seem to go together mm-hmm. because that's pretty. You don't. You don't. Bend. You figure is a ski town. The valleys. You figure there's a ski population. Ashland. You know. You can kind of picture those those ski towns. Pendleton doesn't strike you that way, mm-hmm. and it's not a disparaging comment against Pendleton. But when they developed that ski hill up there. It was for just the group only, but realized financially they couldn't make it work. And then they had to allow people that were non-members to utilize their hill. A little, little too late. And they ended up going financially insolvent in just a couple of years and had to sell off all their assets. There really wasn't one group that played into development. If you look at Skyliners here locally in Bend, first they were organizing trips to go up into Broken Top and, and skiing in the spring. And then they wanted to develop their own hill, which their first one was on McKenzie Pass. And then they wanted closer to Bend. They developed up on Tumalo. They thought about some other venues in the process. But when Mount Bachelor was started by Bill Healy, the Skyliners by then was an organization that was not geared. They were skiers. They weren't business people. And the history of, of how Skylanders morphed into an area that, as a group, built ski areas to the point where we, want, we don't want to run a business. We just want to play. And that's, in fact, when, when Bachelor first started up, the Skyliners were not part of that management structure. I mean, they, they were represented well. They, you know, there was respect. In fact, the first time they spun the pommel left was just for Skyliners members only. Mm-hmm. And that's before they opened up for the general public. So there's still that respect, but the Skyliner Club didn't have any say on how the mountain ran. And, and that's what you'll find with the history of a lot of these places. The clubs kind of got it started, and then it kind of, when it morphed into more of a business venture, you know, Ed Thurston at Hoodoo, um, you know, just kind of kept developing rope toes and, and adding more and more things, and it got out of the club vein 
when the club said, yeah, Hoodoo would be a good spot for a ski area as opposed to Iron Mountain or Three Finger Jack. And then it just became, um, you know, business decision to operate that way. And the few ski areas that were operated, they always, they like Taft Mountain started off as kind of a community driven, the Lions Club, service clubs were kind of involved in it just to get it going. And then it had some private ownership or, or concession where they, you know, the, the person that ran it on the weekends got the lift ticket revenue and could sell the, the burgers and things like that. But um, they weren't very profitable and it was a tough way to make a living. And, and then that's the reason why a lot of those ended up folding. Mm-hmm. So that Pendleton example is really kind of the archetype of. It really is. It, has it really is. The club, the club got it going and there's lots of little club hills. Um, and there's some good success stories. You know, if you look at Fremont Ski Club and Lakeview and Warner Canyon, um, Ferguson Ridge is another one that started as more of a, a, a club base. And it's still club base, but they have the Lions Club backing them up. Still relies on community volunteers to make it all happen. But that's one of those that they've stayed out of the profit. You know, if someone would to buy Ferguson Ridge, I think you'd have a tough time making a living on it. But as a club... And, and bringing the community in there, it's a success. Yeah. You know, and I've skied for well over 50 years. If I did the math, I'd probably, I'm on my 58th ski season because I started with my first one. <laughs> and I was getting to the point where I, I, I could take it or leave it. And I was kind of just losing the luster. I've already kind of morphed out of, I don't have to chase powder anymore in the crowds on the weekends. I really, really fell in love with spring skiing and corn snow. And, um, but with this ski area project that I started, I thought, you know, I want to visit some of these little hills. I want to ride T-bars. I'm going to ride pommelists. So I had these great opportunities to ski um, Ferguson Ridge T-bar and then Cedar Pass T-bar had the best days. And it rejuvenated me for skiing because it took skiing back to its, its form when I was a little kid riding the Murray Meadow rope toe at Mount Bachelor, it kind of brought that joy out. And just the, the whole atmosphere was so different. And so I wouldn't call it basic because, I mean, I got chased by an eight-year-old at Ferguson Ridge and that kid could ski. <laughs> and it was super fun. And to me, I'm thinking to myself, who lets an eight-year-old kid loose on a ski area by himself? They do at Ferguson Ridge because it's, it's not so encompassing. And everyone looks out for each other and it's a whole different vibe. And I absolutely love those weekends going up. And it got me fired up for skiing at other places. Yeah. yeah. It's small world time when all of a sudden I run into, you know, something like that, that in that story. Yeah. yeah. And the same way with, with a lot of the names that I worked with, you know, and I started in 76, 77. And in this in conjunction with doing this, you know, some of the names popped up, you know, like Cliff Bland. Um, who was the general manager, the second general manager at Mount Bachelor. He started in 61 when they built the first chairlift. Um, but he actually helped um, get the rope toe running at Moore Park in Klamath Falls. Um, just because he was working in the mill, but he had some experience working with rope toes because of his experience with the Skyliner Ski Club. And then if you look at that family, you know, Jerry was, uh, I believe he was a vice president or president of the Aspen Corporation and Big Bear. Um, Dave, who has since passed away, was a mountain manager at uh, Arizona Snowball. And Casey Bland is currently a senior advisor at Palisades Lake Tahoe area. And his project is building that gondola bridging Alpine and Squaw. So there's all these names that are ski area related that keep popping up um, in conjunction with, with doing this. Uh, several people that I met 
early in my career have either moved on or it's like, wait a minute, I remember that guy. And then you call him up and, you know, with these kind of odd conversations and then they can fill in some of the blanks that I've been missing. And um, I think that something that's different is that you don't see some of that heritage employees, if you will, of, of ski areas like you used to. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, mom and dad were ski business and then kids got into ski business. And, you know, a lot of times when, when the ski areas got too big, they got absorbed by larger corporations. And, mm-hmm. um, I think you're absolutely right. Trying to, trying to follow that pedigree of cross pollination across the industry. It's, it's still there. There's still definitely people mm-hmm. today that, that do that. And we'll even move mountain to mountain, move state to state. I think it's a minority. We have a really fun project uh, right now going with uh, Oregon Employment Department to track the seasonal ski area workforce, even across state lines, to see what industry type you came from. Did you go to a ski to do a winter at the ski hill? Where'd you go the next summer? What industry type? And did you come back to the ski area? Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really excited to, to find that data. Um, anyway, that's that's kind of a tangent there. The other. Uh, thing that from, from everything we've just kind of said is the touch point is the Forest Service. Of all those others, if I was looking for some overlap of some interest group that has the, the commonality there, it's, it's hands down the Forest Service because they're the ones going up and, and showcasing here's where this could work. And it's probably this spot of land doesn't have a mineral use for us. We're not trying to extract something from it or timber or whatever else. Um, and it can still have a revenue source and provide recreation for the people. And, and that's kind of their stewardship that, that pointed these people to those directions is really what that sounds like. Yeah. And, and, and that's an interesting project because, you know, in my presentation, I mentioned I, I really like what they do in Baker County because they, they're the overseer of Anthony Lake Ski Area. But then they also oversee the golf course in Baker City. So those employees that want to work, I mean, you could basically almost work year round. You know, you may go from snow grooming to greenskeeping. But they're keeping their employee base pretty well busy. Oregon Department of Forestry, as a tangent, does the same thing because their firefighters in the summertime can then go to work for ODOT in the wintertime plowing snow. And I think when you find those mixes, because that's always been a real struggle for people when, you know, I really like ski area, you know, working at a ski area. I like the vibe. I, I like the working conditions. But what do I do in the off season? Mm-hmm. When I started, I was always, you know, pretty successful because I went from doing my and I was never I was year round my later years at Mount Batcher, but I was seasonal for quite a few years where working ski areas and then I would switch to working as a whitewater guide. Mm-hmm. And I usually have anywhere from three to four weeks at the end of each season, which were always kind of nice ways to either recharge or get firewood and get ready for winter. Um, but I was able to keep myself afloat and, and add to my bank account. A lot of times when you get in those seasonal jobs, you're living from paycheck to paycheck and, and people like it for the sense of adventure. And some of the best people I ever worked with were the people I worked with in the seventies in Mount Bachelor. And now it's, that's tougher because as ski towns have been found out, rents are more expensive and the cost of living in those places. And it's much tougher for people to be the quote unquote ski bum. Mm-hmm. that I guess I fell under that category in the 70s, even though, I mean, I'd, I'd go back to college and see some of my buddies and they'd look at me and go, when are you going to get a real job? Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I skied 40 days this year. I worked at a ski area. I spent my whole summer on a river. You know, I'm a bronzed god uh-huh. from being in the sun. And like, this is really, what do you mean real job? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Uh, well, you know, Mount Bachelor did that too, and they bought Sun Country Tours. Yep. Same yep. thing. And they and diversified, and you'll see a lot of ski areas have diversified for more summer activities, um, or you know, like Silver Mountain in, in northern Idaho. You know, mm-hmm. they got the big water park at the base. You know, which is a good draw. Or you can bring people in off season. But, you know, even though they're not operating, they're still running their gondola for sightseeing rides um, and doing some things like that to to get people up on the mountain and to expose people to, you know, just something different. You know, a gondola ride is, you know, that's and to go up high where you can see forever. Those are neat things for people to experience. That's a really cool even if you're not even if you're not a skier, you know, what a great experience to be able to go stand on top of a mountain can make that public land available for more kinds of activities. Mm-hmm. Multi-use. Multi-use. Uh, trivia, what was Silver Mountain's original name? Jackass. Jackass. Evil. I love that they still <laughs> sell the shirts in the shop. <laughs> so in 1980, when I graduated from college, I wanted to get a job in, you know, and I'd been working as a lift operator up at Mount Bachelor. And then on the way to school, um, the mountain manager at the time, all I had to do was say I was back in town and he put me to work. Great guy that, that just, you know, and, and I, of course, I kind of always earned it. He always knew that I would stay busy and fill in wherever they needed it. But I'd come home and I'd work three weeks during Christmas. I'd come home and work, you know, and I always had, I always had a job open for me every time I showed up. And, uh, that, that meant a lot to me at that time, but I thought, you know, I want to go into ski area management. I really like this. So that year that I graduated in 1980 from Southern Oregon, I went on a road trip and I visited basically four Western states. I was in Idaho, Montana, um, Washington, and of course, Oregon. And one of the places I went to was, and it just the name had just changed from Jackass to Silver Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went up there and they got off a job offered there. But, you know, that's back in the day. If you see Silver Mountain now, that valley is beautiful. But 1980, with the smelters going and the fog line, there was no vegetation below 5,000 feet. And to me, driving through there and driving up the ski area, it's before the gondola and you had this windy road up to the top. To be honest with you, I could not see myself living there mm-hmm. just because it just it was almost eerie how barren it looked and a super fun site clean up it's it's really a pretty spot to go visit now it is now and then yeah. the next door lookout pass that's a great little and i i've, I've got there. a friend that lives there and and i sent him pictures from my because i took pictures of it you know from just below where you their their parking lot was at the time looking down in the valley with just no vegetation yeah. and then uh, i rode the gondola and, and took pretty close to the same picture yeah. and uh it's like what a difference! That's a year funny made. dichotomy of your archaeology of the reclaiming <laughs> the, the fire that reclaimed the Tobacco Trail, and then the the regrowth. That's you know, and, and and it's it's interesting when you say that because you know my work history, you know, fire department. I was a fire investigator, and um, a, a lot of things that I I put together were just you know based on you know solid deductions, if you will. You know, just kind of well, wait a minute. If this was this, and this was this. Well, that kind of makes some sense. So when I say I'm an amateur archaeologist, I mean, and I'm always, and I think I was pretty clear in my presentation, you know, I don't know for sure. I'm 90% sure um, because it all makes sense when you look at it. But when you lose those little pieces of history and you don't have that that sure link to match it. Well, I love it because then it's, you're basically saying, prove me wrong. Here's the information. Here's all the known information. <laughs> Bring me more. Well, me more. yeah, and and no, you're absolutely right. And I'm not. I'm not like I'm. 
I'm being, uh, you know, slapping someone across the face, you know, prove me wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's more like, this is the information, you know, I'd love to have someone tell me something different. And for me, as a guy that, you know, really takes his time and kind of, you know, when I, when I put something out there, if someone challenges me, it took me a while to get over not being defensive about it. It's like, what do you mean yeah. you don't believe what I have to say? I did a presentation once and before the presentation, I'm setting my laptop up and this guy walks up to me and he just bears right into my eyes and goes, why should I listen to what you have to say? No, hi, I'm Joe Smith or anything like that. Just walked right up, glared right at me and goes, why should I listen to what you have to say? And I said, well, it kind of took me back. And I'm like, well, listen to the presentation. If you have some challenges, I'd love to hear them at the end of the presentation. When someone challenges me, what it does is it either makes my research better because I can prove it, or he's given me or she is giving me that little tidbit that I missed that might be something that's going to make something even more accurate historically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's probably there's better tact than just walking over the beginning and throwing down the gauntlet. Well, you, you know, if you work with the public, you know, you get all types. Yeah. And um, for me, I've had public contact, you know, when I was a high school teacher, I'm dealing with uh, 15 to 18 year olds and you're getting a different kind of contact. I've had enough experience working at ski areas, including, you know, several managerial roles where, where people are, are pissed off at you. And you just find interesting ways to make them believers. Um, and with fire department, unfortunately, one of the, the jobs I had to do was enforce burn regulations where you'd end up citing people. And I always got people to, I mean, I had a guy that I gave a $500 ticket to who thanked me. What that tells me that somewhere along the line, all this customer service, which was, you know, either ingrained on you, it, it's either naturally for me as a person, but more than likely, I just had so many different experiences over time that you just figured out different ways to, and you're not always going to make everyone happy, mm -hmm. but my bottom line was to always get someone to say, if it was adversarial, to say something positive, even if it was, have I treated you fairly? If they said, yes, that's something positive. I'm out the door. Mm -hmm. Way to go. We're never going to resolve this. We can sit there and argue all day long, but you at least said something positive. I got my victory. I'm out. <laughs> I need to see a spiderweb Venn diagram of all your used to be jobs. That <laughs> sounds like. And you know what? I, I feel, you know, I'm on my second year of retirement. And by the way, um, re retirement is the best job ever. <laughs> and I also feel very fortunate in my successes in my work career, because, you know, right out of college, I mean, I worked in the dorms as a head resident and RA. And so you're, you're dealing with group dynamics. And I, and I learned really quickly how to unravel group dynamics because as individuals, they were great. But as a group, they'd tear you apart like a bunch of piranhas. And so I learned quickly, even going, you know, to college courses where you had to work together in groups, figuring out ways to make those group dynamics work. And it's a lot like I mentioned earlier with social media, because you get those groups of naysayers that are just, I mean, they're, they're just like sharks circling around looking for some blood in the water. And boy, if you feed them something they can't eat, they swim away. Yeah. And so I feel very fortunate in my work career that all these different experiences, and I've had some terrific supervisors that I've worked for. I've had some that are not so good. And so myself, when I became a supervisor, I'm like, yeah, I remember that guy. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> um, and, and also a way of treating people, whether they're customers or employees. So 
Um, I, I've never been fired from a job. I've had lots of different jobs. Uh, I've moved on for better opportunities. And when I had employees, um, my job was to train them so they were good at their job, but train them so well that they could leave a job for something better, but treat them so they'd stay. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems kind of trite, but that always seemed to work for me that, you know, if a guy came up and, and I loved it when, a, when an employee came up to me and, you know, he's looking at the ground, I'm figuring, okay, what did you screw up? And they were giving me official notice. They found a better job, but they wouldn't look me in the eye because yeah. they, they felt bad about it. It's like, oh, no, this is perfect. Yeah. You're going to make more money. You got a better, yeah, go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, for the, thanks for the talk. So why, why do they die? And that's a great question, and it's one that I've been asked quite a bit. I have not been able to pinpoint one specific cause as the Oregon group of lost ski areas, um, but I can come up with some similarities. One was snowpack that wasn't reliable. The second was access issues, because there was not, you know, if, 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 if your ski area wasn't next to, you know, a state highway, or a county road that was maintained, you had to foot that bill for yourself. And I think one of the reasons why they moved from skiing at Crescent Lake up to Willamette Pass is that access issue from Crescent Lake Junction into Crescent Lake, mm-hmm. where the highway was kept open by Oregon Department of Transportation. The ski areas on McKinsey Pass, same thing. They quit skiing at Hand Lake because ODOT said, No, we're not going to plow this road up there for, you know, weekends for 30 or 40 daredevils that, you know, it's just the, the, the economic cost didn't balance the economic benefit. And ODOT's a pretty interesting organization because even in the 60s, I've got documents where they looked at all the existing ski areas, a lot of which are no longer here, and they would analyze how many customers that ski hill got versus what it cost to plow their parking area or their parking strip. In some cases, it was just a wide spot on the road where they had to make an extra pass with a plow truck. But they started tracking that stuff early in the 60s to realize the economic benefit of their mission of keeping highways open. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Sandy Ann Pass closes, everyone wants that open, but the People that want that open the most are the guys in the orange and yellow trucks trying to keep it open. Mm-hmm. And in back in the early days, you, you didn't have that access. You didn't have that availability of snow plowing to get into your ski area. So like Taft Mountain went away, unreliable snowpack and the cost of opening it up. If you look at the history of the Anthony Lakes area, um, you know, they were skiing there in, in the early 40s. They kind of get the road open. Then the county, were, and I can't remember who it was at the time. I, I believe it was Baker County that was in charge of keeping the road open. They just said, you know, we don't have the resources. We don't have the snowblower. And then the gentleman that developed Little Alps, which was about four or five miles below Anthony Lakes, he built kind of an old-fashioned rotary snowplow of his own, and he was actually able to keep the road open up to Little Alps and people wanted more. And then they actually, you know, went to the governor and, and that, that time was Mark Hatfield said, Hey, we need, you know, we need to get this road open. So he made it a, a measure to keep that road open. The road up to Bachelor used to be maintained by the county and the county really didn't have the high volume snow removal equipment needed for that particular road. 
And so in 1965, I believe it was, there was 13 days the road up to the mountain was not open. So just past the end of the 7th Mountain was a gate. And so when everyone came off the mountain at night, that gate got closed. And then so the county would go up and plow the road in the mornings. They'd open the gate and get their trucks in, close the gate. And then if they didn't get the road open, the gate never opened. So you'd have skiers that would show up and like, damn it, the gate's closed. It <laughs> looks like there's new snow. And it was frustrating for Mount Bachelor as a company that they couldn't keep their, get their road open. And so they actually lobbied really hard to get ODOT to take it over. There was a little bit of a skirmish because the county, I mean, it was kind of, you know, turf war. The county didn't want to give it up. But I think the, the reality of, yeah, if you guys want to spend your money keeping that road open, knock yourself out. And they backed out. And, and really big raging storms, they might have an issue, you know, getting the road open. Um, but for the most part, it, it worked out really well. I believe it was 66, 67 ski season when ODOT took it over. So the two ones are just access and, and, and that unreliable snowpack, but then even more so when, when lifts started coming up. I mean, why hang on to a rope toe when you could put a little stick behind your butt and it drug you up the hill, you know, with a T-bar mm-hmm. or a palm lift or, well, those chair lifts are pretty cool. I mean, even though, you know, the first chair lifts in Oregon, their uphill capacity was less than a surface lift. But when you're sitting in a chair just watching the view, it's yeah. kind of a nice change as opposed to, I mean, really, when you're skiing on a surface lift, you're skiing uphill and you're skiing downhill. Your legs will tell you that at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly why, I mean, even as a former uh, mountain operator, uh, it, it teaches you that gratitude. Um, even on the bad day, and I've been, you know, stuck on a chair that had whatever, a tower fall or whatever breaks down. I'm still sitting on my butt going uphill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good mm-hmm. day. <laughs> and so, and, and I think that's one of the, and, and we look at that. I mean, you can, you can go back to everything that's ever happened. I mean, you know, the first cars had, you know, they didn't have heaters. You froze your butt off and the roads were bumpier in hell. I mean, you can look at all that stuff. And the same thing with skiing. You know, the first skiers, they were, that was a pretty hardy sort. And you had to be pretty dedicated to your sport to go up. And you didn't have all the information that you had today, you know, as far as what the conditions were like. I mean, sometimes the newspapers would do a recap on, you know, Friday saying, this is what the ski conditions were last weekend. Well, in this environment, things change within two hours. So that information, I mean, it just told you whether or not they had snow. Yeah. yeah and yeah. if the weather changes and snow might be gone, you could have got up there and found dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Rain comes real quick. Our conference and kind of why the grander picture of one I already told you, the cultural mm-hmm. and like historical tie-ins to what skiers are currently doing is really important to me right now. Uh, and I'm in a unique role of helping steward and shepherd the industry kind of a neat role it's a neat role it's it's a really neat role and i get a lot of good feedback from a um a lot of outgoing um leadership that are teeing up teeing up to retire and Mm -hmm. picking their successors or or not or or whatever how this all goes and this covid reset button for me where we've canceled our conference for two years now is a really good opportunity for us to gather the group again which we'll do in april and uh, i'm going to offer less technical sessions less classes about hydraulic and counterweight tensions and stuff like that we'll bring those things back and have everybody in the big great hall at the river house convention center and start the day by talking about these sorts of things here's the history here's how the association started what what is the point of this we're a guild i'm a guild Mm -hmm. basically yeah yeah yeah. what's the point of that how did that happen and then how do the ski areas um you know how do they found what's this forest service relationship and we'll have people in the forest service talking about that 
Um, what are operating plans? What are special use permits? How's that, how's that all work? And recognize that legacy that we're inheriting and everybody recognize, okay, we're on generation three of this now. It's your turn. Take this legacy and now what are you going to do with it? And then we're going we're gonna to have to talk about climate change. We're going to talk about the whole gamut of everything. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm looking for that link. Who are, who are these transition knowledge holders that can help me make these links? And I think this is really important. I think this-, this would it? Do you want me to do a presentation? So this is what we need to develop, and we can take this offline further. But to to get that out to people of basically how we got here, and this is how we got here, and now what are we going to do with it? Right. As a editorial note, I like your concept because you know I went to when I was at Willamette Pass and a couple of places I went to this, and I but I went to specific things. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that you know for me to go up and and you know grooming or whatever it was. Um, those were something that was kind of more interesting. But one of the things, and I regret in my, when I first started plowing snow up the mountain, you know, the way we had to plow it and, and snow plows do not make right turns very well. <laughs> so everything went counterclockwise and it ended up with snow up against the bank. And of course we ran the blower. If we could, we'd shoot it to the other bank, but sometimes you'd get gravel down at the base of red chair. And the mountain manager at the time, Matt Chaney, used to just come screaming at me, dude, what do you want me to do? And my boss and him, they, they'd go battle and he goes, you got to get the snow out of the parking lot. You know, is there a way you can, yeah, we can do it, but it takes more time. So you decide which, but in my hindsight, my job at that time, and this is where I'm, my point is, my job is to get the power, parking lots open. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit what happened after I got my job done. And that was wrong of me. So for me, I would have had, and I went by um, Skyliner lift and this has been many years ago and I came by and there's all the cinder in there so at some point in time they had blown snow up on that ramp which there's no excuse for that because that's so narrow in there it could easily gone the other direction and not been there but you see that red cinder there and I, I know that base well enough I know that ain't that mm-hmm. doesn't have red cinder there that came out of the parking lot <laughs> and but what it triggered to me was the fact that all those times that I threw cinder up on a lift I just made someone's ski experience not as good as it should have been where we could have spent. Yeah, we had some pressure to get the job done. And that would have been more of a, a, you know, Dave Marsh would have walked and said, you guys figure this out. No more fighting. Make it work Mm -hmm. as a management style. And then I would have probably got in there. It's, It's one of those little regrets. And it's a simple, trite thing. But when all of a sudden it happened to me. I kind of looked and went, oh, lazy snowblower operators. Like, you know, like, oh, shit, I used to be that lazy snowblower. And the same thing with grooming. You know, you got a little slobber off your, your tiller and you went, yeah, don't worry about it. Ski patrol, smash it down. Well, I could have just as easily pulled my dragged up, backed up, gone, and no one would have ever seen it. It was a 30-second deal. But nope, I got so many laps to do, I got to do it. And that as, you know, when you've got so many different things going on with grooming and snow removal and transportation and. And all the, all the pieces of that puzzle, that's one of the things that my regret is that I didn't do my job to make it team oriented. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about having a convention where it's, yeah, it's not going to be counterweight tension or, you know, how to rebuild your grips or any of those, you know, which is really specific. Because the guy running a snowplow, he don't give a shit about that. Mm-hmm. The, the food and beverage manager, they don't give a shit about that. But that food and beverage job is just as important as the guy that knows how to adjust the grips correctly yep. to make that ski experience and that whole puzzle. And they use 
you know, quaint terms. Hey, you want to be one of our team members? And I always thought that was like, oh, God, you know, it's more yep. blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm going to be a team member. Yep. But there's something about that logic that I really now find myself not trying to be the grumpy old man. It's like, man, I wish we would have done more team stuff back then. So your idea of making it, you know, even having food and beverage listened about they're all scared. in the same room That's all exactly in the same right. air I, I think there's some really neat value to that yep. and it's and it's a i wish that someone would have just somehow put that team together yep. so everything worked well i have the same blemish on my track record in spots too just like you said of where, of where i was the one in charge of making it work and and didn't always get the win so i, th- I think you're right i think it's important to do that both you know, one, the main priority is run your ski area in that way, and you're going to be a damn successful ski area. But also, you're the cultural leader. Oregon itself is like a $19 billion outdoor recreation economy state now. Like, it's, it's societal. It, it's societal. If you can yeah. make that happen in your little microcosm of your ski area, which is its own little society kind of, and take that in your community, the Northwest just won in a big way. Kind of an abrupt ending there. Uh, actually, since we went two hours long, uh, the whole end of that, my wife was texting me uh, increasingly in a, in a frenzy because it was my turn to tag out uh, the kids and I had to get out of there. I do need to give us just a little bit of a fact check there at the end when I was talking about the size in dollars terms of Oregon's outdoor recreation economy. I said 19 billion. For some reason, the number is in my head. Double checking with Travel Oregon. I think the latest number is 15.6 billion. Still, no small bag of nuts. But big thanks to Steve Stenkamp there for going over that with me. As you can tell, we really didn't get into the guts of the lost ski areas. It was more uh, about his journey through this research project and, and, you know, his back catalog too. He's had a pretty interesting life. But Steve is coming to the Mountain Works Conference on April 26th this year. I think kicking off the conference, he's going to be teaming up with Kirby Gilbert from Washington, who also has history from Washington State. It's going to be an hour and a half long, the legacy of Northwest ski areas talking about Oregon, hearing it from Steve. He'll have his accompanying slide deck, so that's going to be cool. Uh, we're going to be hearing it from Kirby with also an accompanying slide deck. It, I'm really excited. It's one of the, the sessions I'm just so stoked about for the Mountain Works Conference. So make sure you guys hit it up. Go PNSAA.org and get to the Mountain Works Conference. Make sure you subscribe so the next episode pops up on your feed. Leave us some reviews and we'll see you next time when we talk about how the mountain works. They had bad rope toe posture. <laughs> and you, yeah, yeah, exactly. The full lean over like this thing's pulling my arms out of the socket. It's like, no, dude, get your back straight up in the air. If you need some help, put your hand behind your back and, and away you go. I'm Coggy Foggle. <laughs>